This is the podcast for Indelible, a documentary in progress for the week of September 5th, 2016. I've been delaying creating a podcast in part because I was waiting to read the documents I received a few days ago from the FBI, the second installment. I was also waiting to see if I might finish a storyboard that I could use and narrate rather than just present my voice. But this is taking longer than I hoped, and I don't want to feel pressured in this work. So I've decided to go ahead and do the podcast. Tomorrow, September 5th, is the 35th anniversary of Carl Harp's murder in prison. It occurred in 1981. I couldn't read the second installment of the FBI documents on my personal computer because the last time I did, my computer got a virus, as did all computers on my network. It may have just been a coincidence, I don't know, but I am now being cautious. Then, Friday night, I finally found a way to read them using another system. 600 pages. Since this is the second installment, I now feel fairly confident in saying this handing over of alleged documents is likely a form of performance by the FBI. I doubt this is actually Carl's FBI file. It is likely a few pages of it, buried amongst the many pages supplied for effect. The entire 600 pages, except perhaps 20, dealt with the quote-unquote brutality issue by the guards on Walla Walla State prisoners in July 1979. This event drew a lot of press. After Carl's death, there was a trial over whether there was brutality overseen by a Judge Tanner in a Spokane court. The court ruled in favor of the inmates. This is not in the documents, but something I found earlier. Carl's third wife, Susan Waymeyer attended the trial just before she disappeared from history. I learned about her death from my own research. She died later in 1996. She was 41. Her time after Carl's death showed signs of harassment by the state and her death was suspicious, yet well covered up. Her mother had been living with her, and she also died a year or so before Susan did. Susan's death came from a needle placed into her by a man whom she lived with, who had a questionable background himself. It was allegedly for a treatment for her diabetes, and um, all of Carl's documents in her possession were strangely destroyed by this man. 
The FBI document showed that the governor at the time of the brutality incident in 1979 was Dixie Lee Ray. She and a Senator Jackson appeared to want to stop the brutality against prisoners in Walla Walla. But this too seemed to be an act. John Bosch corroborates my feelings about their behavior and he was in prison in Walla Walla at the time. On July 9th, 1979, there was an effort by the inmates to once again bring attention to their squalid living conditions and to sustain a sense of their own humanity. They felt the way to do so was to destroy their cells. The only control they had was over their body and their cell, and so they often used both to express their anger and resentment. They ripped the toilets and furniture from the walls. Everything was done in stages. The destruction of the cells by the inmates occurred both before and after dinner. The guards also came into the cell block both before and after dinner. There had been a murder of a guard by an inmate or inmates weeks or months before the incident, and the guards yelled his name as they came marching through the cell block. This marching in bearing weapons against unarmed caged men appeared in part to be motivated by this death. They told the inmates as they came in for them that this is a war. They described them as animals. They wanted to see them as animals. They forced them to act like animals for their own amusement. But even as they stood waiting, the inmates were ready to defend against this threat to their humanity. There was a priest who worked at Walla Walla Penitentiary named Father Bay, and the last name is spelled B-E-H. Um, John told me it was pronounced Bay, who held to the truth, but feared the loss of his job in doing so. And once again, Carl Harp was at the center of the conflict. He encouraged the inmates in their actions for good reason. And the guards focused on him in their brutality. He was beaten and raped with a nightstick during the battle. The guards were drunk. As they raped him, they commented on the appearance of his ass. They said he liked it because he was a member of Men Against Sexism, which was, an which was an organization that he helped form with another prisoner um, to help stop the rape of prisoners by other prisoners in Walla Walla. They said he was a punk, which had a specific meaning in prison. And according to John, he was not. They chided his claim of being a political prisoner they laughed at him for being the Bellevue sniper. They doused him in mace before they entered his cell, number 15. He couldn't see. His eyes were swollen and blinded. 
They ripped off his cut-off jeans and underwear. After they were done raping him, he said he was bleeding from his ass. A doctor wrote he had a tear on the left side of his anus that was two and a half centimeters long. After they were done, Harp was pushed out into a line of prisoners headed for the administration building. As he stumbled, they beat him and told him to hold up his pants or they would do it again. He couldn't. He nearly fainted. Someone held them up for him. Later, as he stood in line, leaning against the side of a building, they told him as they laughed that if he wanted to sit, he could sit on the nightstick again. And they shoved the stick into him once more. He groaned. He spent the next five days in a hospital outside the prison. It was not a prison hospital. If there were no such wounds as the state wishes to maintain, he would not have been in the hospital for this many days. The prison medical staff said he was fine, but a doctor at the hospital outside the prison described his wounds to reflect the facts. The FBI and the state never used the word rape in their descriptions. They merely said a nightstick was shoved up his rectum. I wonder why they worked so hard to not use the word rape. An FBI officer was charged with investigating the brutality. The guards refused to cooperate and the agent was allegedly told to just use the Walla Walla prosecutor's documents. The FBI documents I received were primarily the prosecutor's case. It included a duplication of documents with statements by guards. There were prisoners' statements taken by the FBI agent. Most of the prisoners, however, seemed to have lost their memory and could recall little, though a few described the details of the beatings. The event was recorded by an inmate it named the prisoner who did the recording. And Harp was said to have screamed as he was raped. But most people from Walla Walla know this. There were also a bizarre series of letters from an inmate in Walla Walla to his mother. I think the FBI wanted me to believe this was Harp writing. But it was clearly not and had nothing to do with him as far as I could tell. So why was this in his file? Oddly, it said the prisoner's mother walked these letters to the Seattle FBI office and turned them in. She also mailed others from the Tri-Cities, which is across the state and where Carl was cremated. The letters were terribly innocent sounding and I felt sorry for the kid. His mother betrayed him. It said the kid was studying accounting while in prison. Well, this was not Harp. His mother lived west of the mountains in Washington State. He said he had five years left in prison as of 1979. This too was not Harp, facing a 95-year sentence. I'm providing this information about 
this kid's letters in case someone recognizes him and shame on his mother for betraying him. It seems anyone in prison or wanted by those in power or law enforcement has the experience of family and friends being intimidated into handing over all communication with their imprisoned or surveilled family member to the FBI, even after a conviction. This was the case with Harp, and clearly with this kid, and with John, John Bosch, Carl's cellmate. John said it is wrong, and that it shows having no balls to comply. But I asked him, is there ever an exception? Has he ever seen one? As I haven't, and I wonder, where are those who are strong enough to resist this form of betrayal? The FBI also said they removed their five agents who were part of the prison after the attacks by the guards on prisoners, as it was too dangerous. These were not interviewers. The interviewer appeared to be one man, Agent Cusack. This implies there were agents as possibly inmates. Is this true? Or does the FBI just want listeners to think this to be the case? I don't know. I tend to think leading others to believe this currently has some benefit for law enforcement. So I don't know if I would believe it. But having said that, I don't doubt such agents were part of the prison population from time to time. I've read about such infiltration occurring in San Quentin in the 60s and 70s. So why not at Walla Walla? The documents ended with a diatribe dated January 1980. It said Harp sent a letter to the FBI saying he feared his life was in danger. But the documents did not include his letter. Why not? It only included the FBI's decision that it did not warrant investigation. This was a year before he was murdered. I think attorney Jesse Trentadu was right. He was the brother of a man who was falsely accused in a crime related to the Oklahoma bombing. He was just a you know, had, had done some low-level crimes and was on parole and in violation for drinking beer when he wasn't supposed to while he was working construction. And because of his appearance, he looked like one of the people involved in the Oklahoma bombing. And the FBI put him in prison and uh, beat him to death and tortured him before they killed him. Jesse Trenadu had been working to get to the bottom of that, just for his own peace of mind and for the family's peace of mind. And the FBI stonewalled and um, did all sorts of shenanigans to stop Jesse from getting the documents. So according to Jesse Trenadu, the FBI does not provide the actual file when wrongdoing has occurred to an inmate that involves law enforcement. They provide some collection of things they feel will satisfy the legal requirements. There were perhaps two or three pages that were actually FBI documents in this set, 
The rest were again newspaper clippings. That poor kid's letters to his mom and giving his love to his nana. And the prosecutor's documents for the brutality case, which included Agent Cusack's investigation. The description of those few days during and after attacks by guards do create a detailed portrait of Walla Walla and Harp's experience of it during that time. They show how prisoners' wounds were seen as not worthy of treatment and blamed on their own actions. For instance, an inmate's tooth, broken tooth, after the attack was said to be likely self-inflicted. I have a really hard time believing this. And their solution to the problem was punitive. They pulled it from his mouth rather than repair it to remove any questions in the future. Carl met his fate as a rape victim that night with the first nightstick. His second rape was to result in the end of his life. Before the guards entered his cell, he states he carefully took off his glasses and placed them on his table, anticipating a fight. But the first thing that came towards him was a dousing of mace. In another scene, before the rape, Carl was described as yelling out of his cell. Carl said he was yelling for the guards to stop beating other prisoners. Another witness said he was yelling, come and get me, you motherfuckers. Either one seems reasonable and possible, given the situation. One guard stuck a black nightstick into his ribs through the bars. Carl grabbed it with his hands, and the guard tried to pull it back. Carl held on tight, and then as the guard pulled with all his weight, Carl let go, causing the guard to fall backwards against the wall. It was all a dance of violence. Carl stood on his feet. It was all he had to his name. Father Bay said, violence begets violence. John said prisoners trusted Bay. Bay tried to accurately describe the injuries of the inmates that he saw after the attacks. He asked other employees at Walla Walla to do the same. They wouldn't. He wanted the violence to stop. He became the enemy of the administration and law enforcement. Did he lose his job for taking this stand as he feared? I don't know. Should I try to get Harp's actual FBI file or let this staged one suffice? I don't know. What you are given is often exactly that which is needed even if it is not intended to be so. So I will try to listen carefully to the story between the facts that are provided. And hopefully, I will learn something new, as will you. And that's all I have for tonight. Good night.